Hello. 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 And welcome to this very special end of the year best of the Geeks at the Gates. You've just heard some of the myriad voices that have joined us throughout 2020. And now we're going to look back onto some of the best bits. Links in the show notes to all of the original episodes that were, uh, as well as some other bits and pieces over at www.destinationvenus.co.uk. Click on the blog button at the top of the homepage uh, and find the 2020 best of post and everything that you need will be there. We're going to start by looking back to a chat we had with Rachel Smith earlier in the year and uh, focusing on her quarantine comics which you may remember were published online every single day throughout lockdown uh, and then they made a brief return also in lockdown too i know they kept me going throughout the year and uh, this is what rachel had to say i mean we do have to start with quarantine comics which have kind of <laughs> kind of taken off a bit yeah a little bit <laughs> i mean i'm assuming that may have been the hope but i'm i'm fairly sure that wasn't the plan originally no, I kind of just started doing it to keep myself sane, really, mm-hmm. um, to give me a reason to get up in the morning. And yeah, people have been really kind about them. People have said that they find them really relatable. And um, uh, yeah, I've got like a lot more, a lot more followers and stuff since I started doing them, which is amazing. I, I think it helps that they're really, really good. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. Thank you. But I think it's probably. I don't think it is the most recent one now, but the one you recently did as a as a as a coloured print mm-hmm. might be the most relatable yet. Not, not <laughs> it's because... certainly been the most popular. <laughs> <laughs> and, and not because I'm in a similar situation to you in in, in sort of relationship terms. It's just the weirdness of the situation mm. that that strip sums up. And of course, when you publish autobiographical work in the way that Rachel does, uh, that does beg one very important question. Just how much do you share? And what are the consequences of that? Your work is incredibly personal. Yeah, it's very, very honest. It is, um, Mm. which is hugely refreshing. But mm. I don't know, does it ever get weird that people know stuff or perhaps even don't know stuff, but assume stuff or think they know stuff about you because they've read your your comics? It's strange. It only really gets weird if I meet people in person, like if people come up to me at conventions mm-hmm. and they start talking to me about, just in case your listeners aren't aware, I've, I've done two autobio comics one called wired it wrong and one called stand in your power both about my kind of mental health troubles and um and depression and things like that and my my strange coping mechanisms and stuff and quarantine comics kind of is in the same kind of ilk as that like mm-hmm. it's the same so it's the same sort of way that i'm talking to my readers and and, and stuff on on the page and when people come up to me at conventions you know they'll sort of ask me how my, how my therapy's going and and how and it's very very strange that they know all this about me and and I know nothing about them. <laughs> and so that's the only time it really becomes very starkly obvious at just how weird it is <laughs> that I put my life 
my life on the page. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said before, my my mum would probably say I'm a bit too honest <laughs> about stuff, but I think my readers, you know, they deserve my honesty, and and especially those who are suffering with similar mental health problems and and stuff like that. I, mm-hmm. you know, it would seem. Yeah, it wouldn't be fair. Wouldn't be fair to them. If if I'm uncomfortable with something, then I just won't do that. I just won't do that strip. So that was the wonderful Rachel Smith, and we will be coming back to the theme of mental health a little bit later in the show. But before we do, I want to take a little diversion and revisit what I think is one of the best editions of the Geeks at the Gates that we have ever recorded. It was supposed to be the start of a series where I talked to each one of the geeks about something that they're passionate and geeky about that is not generally regarded as geeky. I, for example, was going to talk about Jane Austen and possibly also cricket. Now, the series itself did not happen because it was impossible to get any of the geeks together over lockdown. A weird thing happened over lockdown in that everybody was suddenly really, really busy because suddenly their jobs kicked into overdrive or there were childcare issues or you know, any number of things. Uh, and it's a, it's a weird thing about lockdown that everyone was staying at home and nobody had any time to do anything. So we only got this one issue recorded and that was Hat, who, aside from being an educator and a talented graphic artist and a talented designer and all the other many things that she is. Um, She's also a fine artist uh, and holds a master's degree in fine art. And so I got Hat to talk me through the entire history of Western art. And we got to a bit uh, when we got to pop art that I have fairly strong opinions about. And it turns out that Hat does too. Essentially, we both really, really dislike Roy Lichtenstein. But then, of course, we have uh, Roy Lichtenstein. Yes. Who who basically just ripped off comic book artists. Yeah, and it wasn't even subtle. I mean, it's not even (laughs) as though he he was inspired. He just straight up copied. Yeah, he took a he took pictures, he took he took frames um from comics and then he painted them big. That was it. That was his whole thing. Yeah. And somehow um, that was art. And yeah. worth comics weren't. Hundreds of thousands. But yeah, the people who drew these original who he never acknowledged. No, he never did. I find that absolutely it's, it's, yeah. just, it's just from an artist, it's well, from anybody. But particularly from an artist, that is disgraceful behaviour. It, it really is. Did he ever sue anyone for plagiarism? I don't know. I actually don't know. Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look that up before I do the I show think notes. You should. Because, because <laughs> if he did, that just makes him an even lower form of life. Oh yeah, completely. I mean, that whole thing for me. I um, I remember trying to find who the original artists were, and this was. When I was doing my degree, so it's quite some time ago. Uh, we're looking at like ten years ago or so, and it was actually really difficult to cross-reference them. Now I think you, it's been done many, many times because mm-hmm. um, recently I've seen it. I've seen the the articles come up and the things around explaining. Yeah, this is who he ripped off, and this is exactly the comic it's from. But actually, trying to find that information, like I say, ten years ago was not easy because that's something I, I wanted to do because I used um, the the drowning woman uh, as my unsolved mystery in my murders 
project, as I mentioned earlier. Mm. And uh, I, cu- I couldn't find out what it was from, but I knew that he was ripping them off. <laughs> and that was part of the reason for having him as my unsolved mystery. Of course, as the year progressed, we started to emerge from lockdown, blinking into the new light of masks and substantial meals. And some of the events that had been planned for the year actually took place, although in significantly truncated forms. One of these was the Dead Northern Horror Film Festival. The guys behind it had big plans, and obviously these were largely curtailed by the pandemic, but it did go ahead, and when they came on the show to talk about it, the first thing I asked was, well, what exactly is Dead Northern? It is a horror film festival, which main USP is putting the festival into the film festival. So mm-hmm. our sort of main objective is to not just only have the films, but it's to have a lot of theatrics and a lot of fun. And it was to have a, a few parties involved, which uh, is... Uh, not quite gone to plan this year. What what kind of films are we talking here? It's kind of going to be the full selection, really. So hopefully there'll be there'll be something for everyone. There's a selection of sort of independent films which have been submitted through Film Freeway, which is a platform we used for sort of new independents that are kind of up and coming and new filmmakers to submit to us. And we have a judging panel, and there's been over 40 films selected for this year, which will be sort of brand new and on the festival circuit. Um, on top of that as well, for the evenings, we're going to have more kind of traditional classic movies like the 80s classic Poltergeist to sort of round off Friday night, which would be great. And a couple of UK premieres as well. We're going to be one of the only cinemas, I think, in the country showing Hosts, which was picked up by Shudder earlier this year. And that is a, a horror movie that was filmed completely on Zoom over lockdown, which is brilliant. Just under That's just under very a lot this year. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, it's going to be a full selection of hopefully something for everyone. And we're very pleased to say that Dead Northern did happen and was a huge, huge success at the Crown Hotel. It is coming back for 2021. Hopefully all of this pandemic stuff will have abated by then and they'll be able to do some of the things they had in store for this year. Can't tell you about any of them, but I do know what some of them are, and it's going to be great. Of course, the biggest geek event that was supposed to happen in Harrogate in 2020 was Thought Bubble, which moved from Leeds to our very own convention centre in November 2019. It was supposed to be back in November 2020, but of course the pandemic happened. Not only were conventions a really bad idea by November, uh, but the venue itself was and remains the Nightingale Hospital for Yorkshire and the Humber. So earlier in the year, I talked to the wonderful Chloe Green from the Thought Bubble organisation team to find out what was going on with Thought Bubble and how they were going to navigate their way through the pandemic of 2020. So last year, Thought Bubble 2019, first time in Harrogate, first time in a single venue for a few years. Mm-hmm. How was it? Harrogate was incredible. Couldn't have gone any better. We were obviously a little apprehensive about moving cities and about being in a new venue and if it would still have the thought bubble feel. Mm-hmm. We obviously saw the benefits of being under one roof, but you never know until the weekend. And everyone showed up. Everyone did incredible. It was really fun. And we were so excited for 2020. Um <laughs> 
we 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 decided we were going to stay in Harrogate almost straight away because of how well it went. I have to say that I, I guess everyone I spoke to from the organisers at the end of 2019, nobody would say, oh, yeah, no, definitely. We definitely want to come back to Harrogate. But that was very much mm-hmm. the vibe I was getting. Yeah, well, I mean, we ha- obviously we have to, like, assess things afterwards and make sure that there wasn't anything that we weren't aware of once we mm-hmm. got feedback from people. But as a whole, yeah, like the, the venue staff were great. We didn't get anything negative from anyone. So as soon as you get that, it's a no-brainer, really, to stay in the same place. I guess what Harrogate's got going for it is it's, it is a small town. So when thousands of comic fans suddenly descend for the weekend, we take over the town anyway. So even though it might be a little bit stuffy normally, it mm-hmm. totally changed for that weekend, which was really cool. Like, um, I think on the on the Friday night, I went into a bar, and you could just tell that everyone in there was was there for Thought Bubble. Yeah, and it was just like the atmosphere was totally different, and that was just really cool. Whereas Leeds is a little bit more spread out, mm-hmm. um, so maybe mm-hmm. the impact doesn't seem as dramatic. Hang on. Did she just call Harrogate stuffy? Hmm. To be fair, uh, that little pinging noise you heard a minute or two ago was to indicate that I had done a fairly major edit and she was in fact responding to me saying that Harrogate wasn't really as cool as Leeds, which, if we are honest with ourselves, it is not. Although stuffy, not a word I'd use. Anyway, that was the huge success of Thought Bubble 2019, but that wasn't possible in 2020, so... What did they do? Thought Bubble centres around its exhibitors. They're the most important thing to Thought Bubble and what keeps us running. And so the whole premise of us having a digital convention is to to help them, to, to bring like some extra eyes to their, their own shops and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of makes sense for us to give it a go. So... How exactly is this going to work? We we're still we're still ironing things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, like I said, with the exhibitors, we're going to have five exhibit like digital exhibitor halls. Mm-hmm. Um, give people a chance to like showcase what they're selling and what they make, and um, direct people to their own individual shops as well. So it's not us that are dealing with any of the purchases. Mm-hmm. And we've still got all those guests as well, like the. 90% of the guests that we already had lined up have agreed to do something digitally with us. So we've got a bunch of panels, a bunch of Q&As still, a bunch of live drawings that are all be, it's all going to be on this website. So literally everything is going to be on there. We're just hoping that there'll be loads of people sat around the computers for the whole weekend like they would be <laughs> um, <laughs> at the con. So you say most of the guests are still virtually attending. Mm-hmm. So, so what what sort of form does that take? Are we are you going to be able to do actual Q and As and with with fan interaction or? So the the vast majority um, will be pre recorded, right? But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be taking questions from people. So you're going to still have the opportunity to send your questions in to specific guests. We, we're trying, we're thinking about maybe getting some videos from people as well, so we can kind of see you asking the question yeah. to, the, to the guest. The, the reason that we're doing it pre-recorded is simply just technical reasons. I've been on the last Zoom thing calls. we want is someone in someone over in America that's up at a totally different time to when they normally are, and their internet's not working. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, even without the time differences, I've been on enough Zoom calls in the last six months. But, yeah, it would be an absolute nightmare 
exactly exactly so yeah so you'll still get chance to ask people questions and you'll still get chance to like comment and stuff as well afterwards but there'll be less chance of the videos dying a death whilst yeah. you're trying to watch it You'd be pleased to know that Thought Bubble did, in fact, happen and was a great success online. We are looking forward to it being a little bit more physical next year. But don't take my word for the fact that Thought Bubble is an important thing. Here are the views of first writer Paul Cornell and then writer Fraser Campbell. Have you been to all the Thought Bubbles? Oh, not by no means all. Um, I've been to the last six or seven. Right. I, I, I don't. I don't remember going to a thought ball where I didn't see you, but I. I haven't been to all of them either. So maybe we just fortuitously coincided. Well, once I once I started going, I, I kept going, but um, I'm, I'm sure it started before I start before I started going. Chloe's going to get cross with me now because she keeps reminding me how many there have been. I think this would have been the fourteenth, right, or possibly fifteenth. Mm. And I really should know that. It was certainly still in the tents in the middle of Leeds City Centre when I first started going. Oh, no, 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 be- before that. It was no, no, in I, the I remember. Yeah, I remember meeting you in, an, in, in the marquee between the Armoury and the New Dock Hall. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then we had the, the brilliant tents in the middle of Leeds City Centre. Mm. Uh, no. I must say the only the only thing I miss about the Leeds location is that Leeds is a fantastic city for social life. Perhaps the best the best provisions of bars etc. I've ever encountered. I'm inclined to agree. It's I mean clearly I am biased because I live in Harrogate, so obviously <laughs> the new location is infinitely superior. But yes, Leeds is much more of a social city than Harrogate will ever be. And uh, so yeah, on the other hand. All, all, all you need is that lovely convention centre bar, really, so... Not quite. So, yeah, here we are. No thought bubbles this year. No, missing oh. it already, to be honest. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough going, obviously. I, I, I go down from, from Scotland every year for it. I've been going since, what, 2011? So, yeah, really, it's, it's just become a big part of my year. I take, like, a week off yeah. work and stuff. And, yeah, and it's, you know, it's a, a weekend where I see a lot of people I don't see normally. Every year, so uh, yeah, really missing it. Yeah. It's a real bummer. Yeah, exactly, exactly <laughs> the same, except I don't, I don't have to go quite as far. Well, it's handy for you now, but even handier than before. Oh, brilliant, now. Yeah, no, it's fantastic now. But hopefully, yeah, hopefully this is it and we'll be able to do it again next year. And yeah. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of optimistic for November 2021. I, th- I think we might just be about back to something approaching normal, at least, if not normal. Yeah, well... That would be nice, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if we, I don't know how quickly we'll get there, or if it's realistic to expect to be able to do conventions uh, next year. But uh, well, hopefully, we shall see. You may remember that I spoke uh, on mic to some of the people who were exhibiting at the virtual Thought Bubble 2020, and since we've just heard from Fraser. Why don't we start looking back at some of the highlights from that conversation? If we were standing at your table at Thought Bubble, what would you be uh-huh. telling me? Uh, well, if it was Thought Bubble this year, we would probably have made some effort to get uh, index printed by now. 
uh, which we just finished up with on Kickstarter. This is uh, a comic book I did with uh, Lucy Sullivan of uh, Marking Fame. Mm-hmm. It's a lo-fi sci-fi comic, a one-shot that we did together, and we've just finished a couple of weeks ago funding that on Kickstarter. Did very well. Lots and lots of backers, which was uh, a real thrill to see. But obviously, because uh, Kickstarter hasn't happened this year... <laughs> Corrections and clarifications. Obviously, Kickstarter has been happening this year. All year, Fraser actually meant Thought Bubble. Uh, uh, thankfully, like me, like like every everybody else making indie comics in Britain, I haven't had to scramble to try and get a new book ready for, for the show. Well, the pitch for Index is, as I said, it's a, it's a kind of lo-fi sci-fi. We call that kind of Dust Bowl sci-fi, a kind of... Uh, Steinbecky, Children of Men kind of thing. And it's basically about a young woman called Meredith who wakes up to find out that she has been indexed and that means that she's been placed on a register of undesirables uh, who become uh, kind of non-persons within the, the society she, she lives in. Uh, she can't walk, she can't live any, people can't speak to her, that kind of thing. Uh, and the sort of the cruelest aspect of this is that you never find out why you've been placed on the index. So she uh, leaves home and follows a clue that she finds that there might be other people like her in a nearby city. So the story's about what happens to her on the way to the city and what she finds when she gets there. Cool. Sounds like my street, actually. If you spent any time around comics and the people that make them, you will know that comics is a very small world. So since Fraser mentions that uh, he's been working with Lucy Sullivan on uh, the book Indexed, here's what Lucy Sullivan had to say about it when I spoke to her. something as a link to indexed which is on my website um which is a lo-fi sci-fi that i've drawn for fraser campbell and I've, actually, left- I've actually just spoken to fraser all oh, right so we did that uh just finished the kickstarter and we're sending that off to print this week i think um, i think that's what he said yeah yeah and we got it lettered by hassan and it looks great i can't wait to see it in print it's going to be really exciting so me too actually what i've seen of it so far again just looks amazing your your art style really works for it oh it was so much fun to do and it, that genre that kind of lo-fi sci-fi is absolutely my bag like all my favorite films are from that genre so mm. when fraser was looking for an artist after it was originally going to be anna redman and she had to drop out for her uni stuff and um when he looked for an artist i was just yeah 100% in and it was just lovely to work with Fraser he's a good guy and a really nice writer to work with because he kind of just lets you go for it and doesn't restrain you and that's a real pleasure actually so yeah I would have had an and I think that's what I like about the people who make comics they have so much respect and admiration for each other's work now my conversation with Lucy then went on to her recently released graphic novel, Barking, um, available at Destination Venus and also on her web- website, links in the show notes. It deals heavily with themes surrounding mental health, and both she and I have some background, both in terms of personal experience and also a little bit sort of pseudo-professionally. And so we got into a bit of a tear, if I'm honest, 
about the state of mental health services in the UK at the moment. I'm going to let it run because this is going to be the longest section in this whole show. Because I, I stand by every word we said and I still think it's really important. What I do want to stress is that none of our ire is directed at the people who are delivering mental health services. Those people are blinking heroes. Uh, nor, although they come up in the conversation, are we directing our ire at the police who are forced between a rock and a hard place when people have serious mental health crises and become a danger either to themselves or very rarely to other people because they don't have the training or the equipment or the resources to deal with mental health. But when people are behaving, in heavy air quotes, strangely in public, it's the police who get called to deal with it. And, you know, that's not their fault. <laughs> the whole thing's a mess, is what I'm saying. Anyway, this is what Lucy and I had to say about it a couple of months ago. Tell me a little bit about Barking. What, what, what's what's the, the, the sort of elevator pitch and how did it come about? So Barking is a tale of grief, madness and the ghosts that haunt us. So it came about in quite a long way. It took about 10 years to come to fruition in the end. But um, it's basically based on in my 20s, my dad died suddenly and I ended up about a year and a half later um, realising that I was in quite a bad place and I had a breakdown mm-hmm. and ended up seeking uh, help. I wasn't sectioned, but I did go through the process of seeing a psychotherapist and coming to terms with the fact that I found out I was uh, had depression and anxiety as well as a kind of grief, as it were. Mm-hmm. And then in the years following, I saw a number of people that were sectioned and I just wanted to start making a story about these things that happen because they all came out of quite everyday, sadly, experiences that happen to lots and lots of people, be that death or relationship breakdowns or illnesses. And everyone I've known that's gone through this, has it's something that happens quite frequently. So I wanted to make a kind of conversation about it and then talk about um, what happens when someone's sectioned because I have quite a few problems with the way that that's dealt with at the moment. So I wanted to talk about that too. Yeah, it's a thing that a lot of people don't really know about or think about or even try and understand. It's a, I mean, I don't think unless you are put in that situation or know someone that is, it just Mm -hmm. doesn't come up in your life because it's so swept under the carpet. I mean, my grandmother was uh, sectioned on and off my whole childhood. I never once saw her in hospital, you know, but what I, my family just didn't talk about it. My dad was just like, oh, you know she's just a bit like that and then our local area she was like known as the mad woman of Fulham and no one really spoke about it right but um you know growing up and then starting to put it against my own experience and think about what she must have been through and how scared she must have been and how uncared for you know I think Mm. people get brushed off once they hit that place and it's like no these are people who are really really vulnerable and they're absolutely often terrified and then they're treated in a really inhumane way so there's a lot to be spoken about with that really yeah i think it really is important to sort of bring i mean mental health in general actually is something that's it's beginning to be spoken about it's beginning yeah. to be destigmatized but it is still there i think that's yeah 
Yeah. People don't want to necessarily talk about it because it's uncomfortable. And I'm not yeah. going to lie, Barking is quite an intense book. And it's, um, it, it, it's the more extreme end of that. And obviously, when you get to a, to a section, and sorry, I, I do have a, a little bit of a background in mental health. So I, you know, I. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, you know, if you get as far as, as, as being sectioned, that, that is extreme. It, it takes a long yeah. It takes a lot to get yeah. to that point. Nobody talks about that. And no. nobody understands the inadequacies of the system that people are being taken into. And except, I think, the people who've been through it and the people whose job it is to actually administer that. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, you know, I don't have any problems with the people necessarily working on it because I think there's lots of good people trying to do their jobs. But it is, it's the system, right? Yeah. It's, it's the way it's sort of grown out of, bedlam and essentially going to kind of laugh at the freaks into a kind of health service it just they're improving on something that was awful to begin with instead of just starting afresh is the big yeah and the whole thing is is, is shockingly under-resourced yeah hugely um, and even more so now with so many people kind yeah. of really feeling the impacts of it it's um it's astonishing how little money has been put towards it and, and the people the people on the front line. I mean, if you are sectioned, it is likely that you'll be taken away by the police. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, that's why I've got them in the book. You're yeah, I mean, sectioned under the, the mental police, health act. The police are not equipped to do that. No, it's and they get no training at all. And um, that's appalling. You know, I, yeah. I sat on a jury service whilst I was writing Barking for a murder trial at the Old Bailey, uh, which oh. was really intense. I, I imagine yeah. it was, yeah. Yeah, it was really hard, hard to deal with, but it was... Um, it was all about mental health. And I heard from a lot of kind of professionals and psychiatrists and doctors, but the police that had to deal with the perpetrator who was claiming he was suffering from mental health, he was quite clearly lying about the fact that he, he was found guilty and he's been put away for it. But he was quite clearly lying about having a mental health episode and was mm-hmm. trying to get away with murdering his fiance. And hearing the police who really were quite convinced by it because they'd had no exposure. They just thought, well, he looked mad and he was saying mad things. Mm. You're like, it's not, it's not that simple, right? But they, no yeah. one had sat down and spoke to him because every single doctor went, he has no recognisable mental health condition whatsoever. But for the police, it was just like, oh, but he was being really crazy. And you're like, mm. okay, <laughs> this is because you've been given no training. And that's terrible because yeah. they are normally the first people involved and they don't get the training. And that's just such an oversight. And they want it. I've met a number mm. of police officers said we'd welcome it but there's yeah, no but no no one's prepared no to give it to them no and and when when these guys you know find themselves in a situation with somebody who is being sectioned then the only place they can take them is a cell yeah yeah and i was Which, gonna do that actually in the book but i thought it would be so convoluted to talk about so i actually got it where a friend of mine when she was sectioned was taken straight to the hospital by the police that so was it was lucky. the yeah, yeah. I think it's often the position you're found in, and because she was a harm to herself, she was taken straight to the hospital. Mm. I think often if you're if you're in a position that looks like you're going to be a harm to other people, then you you're going to go cell. straight into a cell, yeah. and that is, you know, those are the two things you can be sectioned under. Just that displaying those two things in some way so yeah she got very lucky in fact both one of them went through the doctors and the other uh, straight to the hospital actually and the other one went via the police to the hospital so neither ended up in the police cell but yeah it's a whole nother story Mm. that side 
Because, because, I mean, the worst place, if you are in a position where you need to be sectioned, pretty much the worst place possible for you to be is a police cell. Yeah, it couldn't yeah. be worse, you know. And then even once you get to the hospital, things like I've got the um, admittance form for my friend and it's like poorly photocopied, it's barely legible, and that was what she had to sign to just sign her life away. I, and I read a, a really remarkable book as part of my research called Agnes's Jacket, and it's about um, looking into the sort of psychology care, psycho, psych psychiatric care in this country and it talks to a lot of people who are, are on the front line so it talks to people who are service users and people in the service in, in the uh, health service mm-hmm. but one of the people they spoke to was someone who goes and trains people on the London underground so staff there to deal with suicide attempts and the first thing they teach them is that if someone is in that place and they're having a psychotic episode, the chances are that they're having oral hallucinations, possibly even visual hallucinations. And the chances of them actually hearing what you're saying is so small. Mm. They're probably just the voices from their own mind are so loud that they're probably attributing them to you. So that you're as you're approaching them saying, you know, please don't jump please calm down. They're probably hearing the opposite because yes. their voices have hit that peak. And that's, you know, one of the things I really wanted to get across in embarking is that the chances are if you're in that place that you can hear what people are saying that are trying to help you is so minimal. And to feel that kind of what it would feel like to be out overcrowded by voices that aren't actually there, you know, and how complicated and frightening that must be. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, it's it's a really... It's such a difficult thing to cope with on both sides, I think. It is, I think. And I think it's a thing that unless it's not even enough to know people who've been through it. I think unless you've been through it and experienced it, there's probably no real way to understand what it's like. Yeah, I I agree. Any any description that somebody gives gives you of that experience is going to be filtered through your own perceptions and and, the, yeah. and it, you've got no frame of re- reference. I mean, I've never had a psychotic episode. I have no frame of reference for it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, ha- I have had mental health issues. I've also had depression. And actually, that's kind of what I'm basing this on, because before I was ill, somebody close to me had been through it. And I sort of thought, oh, I know about depression. You mm. know, I've seen this person go through it. I, I, I've seen how it affected them. I know what it is. Um, yeah. And I've had it for ooh, easily two or three years before I even contemplated the idea that I might actually need some help because yeah, yeah. I didn't recognize it. And, yeah. you know, so, it's so different, right? Yeah. Ha- having been told about it doesn't prepare you for anything. No. And I think it, it manifests so differently in people like I don't think anyone I knew at the time would have considered what was happening to me was depression because I was like self-destructive I was out all the time I was in a really kind of what seemed like I was coping I guess because I was working three jobs and I was like I had a huge social life but no one was picking up that I was getting really drunk and I was getting into fights with mm-hmm. or trying to get into fights with like big guys all the time. And I was just a slip of a thing at the time. I was, you know, I'm five foot four. I was about eight stone at the time. And I'm like trying to pick fights with massive blokes, you know, because I couldn't, I, I guess I was, I don't know, I was sort of trying to punish myself. I don't even know what I was doing. But for me, I had this kind of night, which ended up being, I, I think a psychotic episode. I can barely remember any of it, but 
it was pretty disastrous. And that was the crux of when I realized that I was in trouble big time. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd really put myself in harm's way and I got a friend in harm's way. And luckily he forgave me for it. And another friend pointed out to me what I'd done because I couldn't remember any of it. And they're just slightly just unrecognizable at the time. And I, I don't remember it. My mind's just blanked a lot of it, you know, but I remember yeah. parts and they were pretty horrific, really. So, yeah. And I wouldn't have recognized it. I still didn't think it was depression you know I just knew that I was extremely angry <laughs> and really really upset but yeah that sounds horribly familiar I have to say yeah and it I think it's a kind of that sort of type of depression is generally kind of attributed more as a kind of male form of it and it's not normally attributed to women when they go through it and that's what I found really strange yeah that women are to be more you know, at home and hiding under the, the duvets. And... Well, I, I think, all, I mean, there is a, a, an element of lingering misogyny, I think, in, mm. in all of it. I mean, it's always been, I'm not going to say fashionable, but certainly acceptable, you know, for, for hundreds yeah. of years, you know, for men to, to, have, to be melancholic. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. Could be, you know, a man could be serious and melancholic. Yeah, but um, women are hysterical. Women are hysterical. And, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and... and I'd like to think that those attitudes don't prevail amongst professionals anymore. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think so. But in the popular imagination amongst regular folk, I think those attitudes are still there. Yeah, I think on the everyday, it's still how it's kind of discussed, isn't it? I think people attribute depression with being sad and staying indoors. Yeah, oh, God. And it, so much, so much. Yeah, I mean, I really fought to not have any imagery in mind of anyone with their heads in the hand or, mm. you know, looking teary. It's something I noticed in Barking, actually, that you you, you yeah. really have, I, I presume consciously, avoided yes. those, those stereotypical tropes. sort of yeah. people sitting huddled up. And, yeah. yeah, I really tried to because it wasn't how I felt. You know, I wasn't like that. I was leery and, mm. like I said, aggressive and then just, yeah. you know fully going for it <laughs> well and i think even on even at, at times when when you do feel like that that's not how you present in public <laughs> exactly and that's kind of the other thing is i think a lot of depressives are really good at putting a face on and looking like everything's fine and we've just we've got it nailed and no i'm okay and that is the hardest part about it because i think we're really good at hiding what's happening and um, that's how we end up getting into yeah. such trouble from yeah. ourselves as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's the hardest part. And yeah. the thing that helps you recover is learning how to realise when you're hitting about and go, right, I've got to take it easy because I can feel that I'm getting those triggers and, you know, it's time to chill out or whatever. But that's the hardest bit is being honest with yourself about where you're heading, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This conversation took a turn, didn't it? But even though it's 2020, it is still Christmas and therefore time to return to perhaps happier things. Earlier we heard from Paul Cornell uh, regarding Thought Bubble. I think it's time we listened to something about his work. Um, but actually, maybe we'll just talk about aliens, shall we? Very much, very much a big fan of uh, Saucer Country and Saucer State. Yeah. Um, I miss that a great deal. Um, am I right in thinking you've got the rights to that back? Um, stuff's happening. Okay. 
I'll, I'll that's, the, that's as far I'll, as that goes. <laughs> I was going to say, I'll let them smile and, and ask no further. But uh, good, because I really love that concept. It's not with IDW anymore. And um, yeah, uh, it, it might take a while for stuff to happen. So I don't want to say too much. But sure. um, I really, really want to finish that story. I mean, you know, <sighs> Trump and Trumpism have happened in the gap. And, yeah. Um, it's uh, we we were just starting to hint about him at the end of the the last run. Um, at the end of the last run, where we reveal well, we reveal Putin is going to be a major villain in this book. And um, you know, be nice to finish that. Yeah, ball. you were oddly uh, prophetic. I I think that I can see an awful lot of stuff in the current political situation that. Um, the way that uh, Trumpism has played into conspiracy theories and consciously mm. used them as a political force, that's right there in Saucer Country. Mm-hmm. And um, the um, Saucer Country is a book, by the way, Saucer Country and its sequel, Saucer State, are books about um, US politics and, UFO- and ufology. Okay, brief pause here because there's another reason I included this clip. I did very much enjoy talking to Paul Cornell about Saucer Country and Saucer State. Uh, his two series um, about UFOs and the US, US government, and subsequently, and that's about to come, uh, about UFOs and UFOlogy. But also, this is an example of a really poor interviewing technique, and I kind of need to own it. I said on the in the original show that um, I botched this interview because I was a little bit starstruck. Paul Cornell is a huge hero of mine. That was Paul interjecting so that the listeners would know what we were talking about, because I, as the host, have failed to let you know. Um, I learned a thing. that I also learned, actually, that I can really irritate Paul Cornell if I try, uh, and apparently even if I don't. Uh, more of that to come probably next week. Anyway, shall we get back to it? We're going to talk about UFOs. And um, when they released those... Um uh, cockpit, ancient cockpit camera um, footage of uh, supposed UFOs over the States mm-hmm. with um, a strangely unsceptical Pentagon commentary about them. Um, I, I thought, well, yeah, this is simply the, the simply the, um, the state of affairs we outlined in Saucer State continuing, mm. that um, the American government uses... Uh, the UFO phenomenon for all sorts of purposes, it's, and I think I think in that case they were trying to. They 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 for a long time they conned the Soviet Union into thinking that the Amer- the Americans had a, a UFO, mm-hmm. and um, I think they're trying to con somebody else right now. But anyway, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny you should say that actually because when when I saw that footage because I'm a I'm a proper space geek I like the real stuff, uh, and I'm always a little bit disappointed when footage like that is, re- is released by official channels so uncritically. Um, the first thing I thought of was Source of, source of State. It, it just seemed so, really? It, I, think, I, think, I think what we, what we outlined in Source of State is true, basically. There may or may not be aliens, but definitely you are, you, ufology it was created by US intelligence. I think you're probably right. And certainly, even if it wasn't created 
by them, it's certainly been very much used and usurped. Would be mm. my would be my assessment as a as a space geek. It's uh, mm. so. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very skeptical follower of UFO lore. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a skeptic with a K because I think a load of people, um, a load of witnesses, are just telling the truth about what they feel they saw. For sure, absolutely, mm. yeah. Um, but, um, but on the other hand. Um, I think the percentage of, you know, possible, actual, real stuff there is within the margin of error of not, not existent. I, I certainly, I mean, I, I hang out with astronomers and stuff, and I've seen an awful lot of stuff that looks astonishingly weird in the sky. That people know what they're talking about. Go, oh, yeah, that's a rocket launch. Yeah, I know exactly what that is. The, the first time you see a satellite go over and uh, you think, well, that's too high for a plane. And then it simply vanishes because it's got into the shadow of the earth. Yeah. And, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of things up there. That, uh, you know, once you get used to being an astronomer uh, in your backyard, the initially inexplicable that become quite explicable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I guess it's, 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 it's a constantly astounding to me how much stuff is going on up there. Um, mm. Both in terms of man-made and sort of natural phenomena that that just looks strange. That that lovely sensation you get when you look at Mars when it's close, and your eyes are telling you that's a solid object. It's not a point source like a star. Yeah. And if you if you if you haven't been told that that's how we perceive planets, that we actually do have a sensation of that as a as a roundness, then you could spend a long time wondering what that is. Yeah, very much so. Mm. Very much so. I mean, even just the experience, I, I was driving home once and there was a bright light on the horizon. And it kept getting brighter and bigger and brighter and bigger and brighter and bigger. And it was sort of dusk. I couldn't figure out what it was. And it was literally, and not until it was maybe 500 yards away from me that I realised, oh, it's a helicopter coming straight at me. And, you know, and I'd been able to see it from miles away. And it, it just... You know, if yeah. I turned away before it flew over me, I would never have known what it was. And I would yeah. always say, what was that strange light in the sky? But I tell you what, the last the last interview I did um, about I Walk With Monsters, we started talking about UFOs about half an hour in and off we went. So I'm kind of hesitant. That's, there's more to me than that. <laughs> and we are happy to confirm that there is indeed much more to Paul Cornell than that, and more from that interview probably in next week's show. But now, for something completely different. The Mandalorian was was interesting in the in the in the format that they chose. Uh, in that it, it was it was much more episode of the week uh, <laughs> than than an overriding story arc. Of course, it did have an overriding story arc with Baby Yoda, but the uh, the idea it felt a little bit. There was an element of the X Files there. Um, at, at its at its cheesiest, it was a little bit Highway to Heaven. Uh, it was a little <laughs> bit Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Carradine, that kind of thing. 
and I thought that balance was 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 quite good actually. So you had like the first two and perhaps the last two that brought back in that overarching mythos of the story. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting that that they that they were trying to uh, uh, broaden out and make it more episodic. I didn't necessarily like it, but I thought it was interesting. I found it very interesting the fact that The Mandalorian is probably one of the the current TV shows that I've watched that is only a plot. There's no B plot in it whatsoever. Um, I yeah, nor- even an A plot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but normally in in like in any TV show, you've got you know, you've got your hero doing their thing, and then maybe like the last scene or something like that like, cuts you know, to somebody else trying to save a planet and data is on the side is learning how to tell a joke that kind of thing. yeah yeah that kind of thing or you know you've got somebody off you know learning how to, to better themselves by you know playing the trombone or something or you know you've, you've there's always like something like even going back to community there's always at least like two or three plots happening in an episode brooklyn 99 kind of does the same thing as well you've always got like two or three kind of story beats happening throughout the same thing but like, if you go to Buffy as well, especially the season that's where you've got the mayor as as the main villain, mm-hmm. you would cut away from what Buffy was doing, and then you'd come back to the mayor's story, and you'd show him like evolving that's, a bit more to, really to build. It might be why I'm really struggling with that because I don't. It's, one, it's not an interesting story, and two, it's not cutting away to anything more interesting. Yeah? No, and I, and I think that's the one thing that the Mandalorian kind of falls down on is they introduce the big bad in the last episode. And suddenly, just like, who is this guy? We know nothing about him. If there'd been a little bit more of an introduction to him through the series, where you just saw this guy doing other stuff, and then suddenly, all oh, right, this is actually linked together. Yeah, um, true. But the Mandalorian have, it played it so safe, though. Uh, yeah. For that, for that first series, they obviously sunk a ton of money into it. I very much That's approve right. of that new uh, filming technique that they're using as well, with the in-camera projection. Oh, I had no, I had no idea how they were doing those stuff until I saw. Oh, those! The you know, and it's incredible. Those sets are incredible. Yeah. Brilliant! Yeah, it works so well. It looks so much better than green screen. It the does. The light behaves correctly. It looks like a set. It, I thought that was a really clever move. It does. I, um, honestly, I when I first read that that had all been filmed on a soundstage, mm. I li- I genuinely, yeah. simply did not believe it. No, no, I didn't. Even when they're in the desert, are you saying that's also the the big screen? Yeah, the whole thing was filmed indoors. If you go on, if you go on to Disney Plus now, they've started a new series. It's it's an episode a week, which is the basically it's the DVD extras of how they've made the Mandalorian. Links in the show notes. You can see how they've done it, and it is utterly incredible. Yes. That was the sound of four grumpy old, well, middle-aged men discussing The Mandalorian. You'll notice I did not say very much in that extract. That's because I couldn't disagree more with the general thrust of that conversation. We were talking, obviously, at that time about Mandalorian Season 1, which is why I didn't blow the spoiler horn. Also, we didn't really give anything away. I thought then, and having seen Season 2, I definitely still think now that The Mandalorian is... Certainly the best thing to happen to Star Wars since Rogue One. And I think it might be the best thing to happen to Star Wars since probably Empire Strikes Back. I rate it highly, is what I'm saying. But I wouldn't want you to get get the impression that that conversation was entirely negative. It was not. Uh, We did also find some things in the middle, I will grant you, of a discussion about how showrunners of various shows uh, were getting things badly wrong. Um, we did find a showrunner who'd redeemed themselves. 
the Watchmen TV show. They and it was Damon oh. Lindelof was behind that, and I was I was adamant that it was going to be terrible because Damon Lindelof I don't think is a good writer either. It was superb. I, I actually said that Damon Lindelof is the new Akiva Goldsman, and he's terrible. But I'd now have to eat very humble pie because Watchmen is probably the best Lindelof. TV Watchmen show. Yeah. Lindelof is clearly learned from his mistakes because. Yeah. I watched a bit of The Leftovers, and that looked really good. And from what I've heard, it stayed. It's, it's meant to be, I've not seen it, but it's meant to be absolutely amazing. It sounds amazing. like he's got stung on Lost in Star Trek Into Darkness. Yeah. And swallowed some humble pie. And Prometheus and, and, and everything else he's worked on, yeah. But then but will that happen to Kennedy? Will Kennedy go, go I've done something wrong here, and he's changed track? I hope so. I just... I, well, she, she, she keeps, just she keeps trying to change track, though, and, uh, and it just doesn't work. And I, and I think that... That is also an issue with the fan base of Star Wars now as well. Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, the, I th- the way that we consume Star Wars is so different to, to the way we did in 77. I think it probably is a show and a thing because I fell out of love with The Walking Dead. And I, I, I've read, I mean, as Roger can testify, I've read so many issues of The Walking Dead comic book and it's, it's amazing. But the TV show just got to be so plodding and was getting, it was getting to like so It kind of always of was, Steve. Depression. It was it was like that from the end of series two onwards. It was dull, but it got worse, and it got to the point where something That's happened. Why I stopped in, watching it. Something <laughs> happened in one episode. Boring. I, I was bored by the end of season one. So a character, yeah, kid, a character got kidnapped in one episode, and you thought, "Oh my god, so, yeah, there's there's going to be like a lot of drama." And basically, by the end of that episode, they'd been released, and nothing had changed from the start of the episode to the end. It was a completely pointless episode. But the way, the way they I released said, information as well was that we'd already seen what had happened and the characters spent the entire episode talking about events that we'd already seen. Yeah, but then, after I stopped watching it, they got a new showrunner and now, apparently, it's amazing. It is full-on horror TV show. It is meant to be one of the most psychologi- should have been. Psych- psychologically terrifying TV shows. And I'm kind of thinking, maybe I should go back in and just catch up you know, miss a season and then just start watching it after the, basically it's had a soft reboot, I think, by the sounds of it. And I guess as we find the positive in the thing that we were complaining about, we leave it there because if that's not the essence of being a geek, I don't know what is. So this is it. The last Geeks at the Gates before the new year. The last Geeks at the Gates of 2020. Been a year, folks. It's definitely been a year. There's been bad. Many, many, many lows. And as I speak to you, Harrogate has just gone into tier three. So the cinema is closed. So the shop is closed. So, yeah, not brilliant. But as far as all of that goes, the end is absolutely in sight. We've got two, count them, two vaccines, which are rolling out as we speak. So, yes. Another sort of semi-sort of lockdown is annoying and inconvenient, but science is doing its thing, and we will be out of this, not necessarily before you know it, but at least we can see an end. This is not March. So there's that. Now, we will be back next week with the second part of our Best of 2020 roundup, because yes, There was enough good in 2020 for us to be able to make two entire hours out of it. I know, I wasn't sure either, but there you are. Until then, 
there's a couple of things we need to say. First of all, if you have been following the Geeks at the Gates on the radio or on the podcast for the last 12 months, thank you. We appreciate your attention. We hope we have brought you some kind of entertainment and enjoyment. If you have been a customer of Destination Venus at any point in the last year, thank you too. Geeks at the Gates was set up to help promote the comic shop Destination Venus, and we're still here too. So, yay us. It's not been an easy year. It's not been an easy year for anybody in retail, but we're hanging on, and we intend to continue to do that. And do you know what? If you are one of the geeks who have stuck with the programme for this year, Steve and Hat and Liz and Alice and Matt and Alex and everybody who came on the show, all the people that we interviewed over the year, thank you. You are awesome people and we appreciate you hugely. So it's time to knock it on the head and wrap it all up. Everyone here at Geek Towers hopes you had a very, very happy Christmas and would like you to wish you a very, very happy, peaceful and safe New Year. 2021 is going to be better. As geeks, we have to have faith in that. Science will save us. It's kind of what it does. There's a lot to look forward to. Okay, we're not going to get glow. We're not going to get I'm not okay with that. But we are going to get Mandalorian Season 3. And however much Steve was cynical about Mandalorian Season 1, we're looking forward to that. So, in the end, all that is left is to thank you for your support, because without you, there is no us. It really is that simple. There'd be no point in doing this if you weren't listening. And to wish you a safe, happy and prosperous New Year. It's been a ride, folks. Thank you for coming on it with us. We'll be back next week. Same time, same device, if that's the device you choose to use. Until then, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Until the next time, we see you all back at the gates. Thank you for listening to the Geeks at the Gate podcast. on Facebook at facebook.com slash geeks at the gate or contact us on Twitter at geeks at the gates or contact us by email on mail for geeks at the gates at gmail.com that is the number four not the word geeks at the gates is a production of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made in Yorkshire I'm happy for if, if if you guys are to, to, to wrap up here. 
See ya. Bye. 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 Thank you.